Welcome to Political OD episode 24. Well, I think the big story at the moment, in some ways it's a big story with, with very little uh, additional information to inform us, uh, has been uh, the resignation of Arlene Foster uh, as First Minister and as leader of the DUP and then the subsequent speed at which a new leadership contest has been put into place. And I think maybe we, we need to start on by looking at why it happened. The trigger uh, topic perhaps was that vote on conversion therapy, which was a nothing motion in the assembly. It didn't mean anything. It had no uh, weight other than simply an expression of, of points of view, uh, almost a non-issue, which seemed to then suddenly bring about a, a rush uh, to unseat Arlene? Yes, the conversion therapy motion, of course, was non-binding. It doesn't have, there's no legislation attached to it. So this was a fairly meaningless motion, I suppose. It was almost a kind of convenient identity thing to, to hang your hats on and um, to kind of point at differences in the party. And I thought it was actually quite a sloppily drafted motion, if I'm honest, because it brought into focus a whole lot of issues and, and didn't really clarify how it was going to deal with those. But um, <laughs> it was a UUP motion, so it, we should it, it was a <laughs> motion and that wasn't and that wasn't surprising. But it looked as if it was purely thought through and, and purely worded and uh, maybe didn't reflect the complexity of the issue, but maybe that's a, you know, decent UUP problem, yeah. <laughs> the Ulster Unionists at times, and that's something that they'll have to, to address. So it was very much a trigger or an, an excuse for this contest rather than the, the actual cause of it, which was more to do with, you know, per perhaps the, the, the protocol and other aspects of Arlene Foster's leadership. The protocol aspect is is also strange because, of course, the, the the party had been merely tripping through the voting lobby to bring the protocol into into being in many ways in, through the through the assembly. If you'd wanted to rise a challenge to that, it's odd to have done it at such a late stage uh, when it's certainly been on its way for what 12, 18 months longer, if you go back to the backstop, you know, there have been plenty of other times when you might have challenged the leadership on uh, future Brexit arrangements. So it wasn't that alone. There is, of course, a suggestion that the level of challenge to local politicians, councillors, MLAs, by members of the public, and, you know, whilst people always put the loyalists in the frame and you know, point to the violence and that, my own experience is just about every strata of unionism, every level of society is 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 hammering on the damage of the of the protocol. People are seeing it in their shops, albeit not a lot of shops are still open. But you can see you know, you see how shelves are changing, how products uh, on the internet aren't as available as they once were. So uh, there's certainly an element of that as well. Well, we were early to this party, uh, if we're going to be a bit hubristic, um, David, because I mean, we've, we've been pointing out various issues with the backstop and then the protocol 
the whole way along, but I suppose it's only when it's implemented that it clarifies in people's minds exactly what it's going to mean, that it's going to mean extra paperwork for companies, that it's going to mean products disappearing from shells, it's going to mean horses kept in a siding in Larn for you know however long uh, and all the rest of it. So this has come into focus um, in the last few months, but I mean, you would be disappointed if not surprised that the DUP didn't see this all coming down the line as well. So uh, yeah, but you can, you can see that, that as well on the equally on, on legacy issues, because, you know, the, the, the pushback at the present time, particularly on uh, from, from uh, victims groups from, uh, uh, and if you like brought to the fore by prosecutions and, and the fear that that brings up in, in many, people who have served in Northern Ireland, uh, which obviously lies particularly within the unionist community. Uh, you know, th those issues are only the outworkings of the Stormont House Agreement, which was a another uh, Robinson scheme to keep the show on the road, as it were. The DUP, again, they, they might be uneasy about what's happening at the moment, but they've only themselves to blame for where they are on that. Yes, I mean, the prosecutions are just a visible expression of what's going on in the background. And I mean, they obviously bring to, to light kind of glaring injustices with um, soldiers being accused um, of crimes during the troubles that either they didn't commit um, or that were in the context of, of, a, of a, a very chaotic um, situation and, and, and Largely, they were trying to avoid a, a civil war, but this um, kind of almost obscures the fact that there's a larger problem with almost an apparatus that um, the, the government and the DUP as well has given the nod to that is very much um, directing blame for the troubles at the state rather than uh, at paramilitary organizations. So. That's the the underlying uh, the underlying problem, and actually, by focusing exclusively on soldier prosecutions, you're not properly getting to grips with that. Again, if you look at both candidates, neither come through uh, these issues with any great uh, glory. You know, if they're trying to convince the unionists, trust me, I'm the leader of unionism. Peter Robinson might have been the leader of the party. And negotiated Stormont House Agreement, but if I recall right, you know Jeffrey Donaldson was part of that negotiating group that that brought the Stormont House Agreement uh, to its point. He was, I think, the lead liaison between the Conservative Party and the DUP on the confidence and supply agreements uh, within uh, Westminster. So you know, backstop protocol, Brexit, whatever the outcomes, they're kind of on his watch. Um, but having said that, I don't recall Edwin Poots particularly making any great noises about any of this. And of course, he's been happy to vote the protocol through instalment and happy enough uh, to implement it through his department. Uh, it was uh, Lyons that put paid you know, that stopped the building. But when Poots came back uh, from his uh, illness, he put everything back in motion again, from what I recall. Yes, and now that it's come to a leadership contest, both candidates say that they want the protocol to go. But in keeping with the kind of opaque 
nature of the, the, the contest. And, um, you know, the DUP has supposedly given the word that they're not to give interviews to, to the media uh, and whatever else. They, they're not saying exactly how, about, how they would go about uh, dismantling the protocol. And certainly their actions in, in, in their jobs at the moment don't give any clue as to how they think that they should uh, go about that sort of formidable task. The, the other simpler um, explanation for the toppling of Arlene Foster that I haven't really seen mentioned in, in the media is, of course, the revenge of Eileen, that, that this has simply been a long time coming. You know, there's always been that erg undercurrent since Robinson took the leadership of a an element that was constantly harping and unhappy at uh, Robinson having done that. And Arlene really was put in place by Robinson and there's you know, continuity Robinson uh, heading in the same direction. And no matter what that direction was, it wasn't their direction. Yeah, well, that division has been in the background ever since that um, sort of coup against Paisley or however you would describe it to an extent. I mean, you would have said that well, I'm, I'm a, quite a, a critic of Arlene Foster's leadership, but one of her achievements was to keep that pretty much invisible to the general public. But every now and again, particularly in the background, and I mean, you mentioned Eileen and with the Paisley family, that would bubble to the surface and you would see just exactly the kind of um, bitterness that that had, had caused. So those factions are again coming to the fore, that old Paisleyite faction. And you can say, the, the modernizers are being represented by uh, by Jeffrey Donaldson in this leadership uh, contest. So it'll be fascinating to see which of the the factions within the DUP end up in charge this time. I, I, mean, I just I just had noticed that you know, Kyle Paisley had suddenly bounced back into the media columns this past week, and you know that, that sort of tells me that there's a there's a bit more of that that sort of revenge element, uh, revenge is probably too too hard a, a term, but you know, it, there, there's that element of payback almost in terms of you toppled uh, Ian Paisley, we're, get, we're toppling you now. There, there's just that sense of uh, that hint of it in the background. And that that's a worrying thing for unionism because we're in this situation now that the DUP is the biggest party in unionism and has been for an awful no, uh, lot of years. And they are setting the direction that unionism will, will go in, realistically speaking. So if um, the kind of rivalry within the party is based more on a kind of factionalism or, or on payback or uh, on the personalities or whatever, rather than you know differences of ideology or principle or um, emphasis, then that raises difficulties for unionists because then they, they, they're, they're not seeing leadership decided on the issues that uh, you know, will, will then play out on the ground. Well, I think the, the, the other aspect on that line is basically what is the nature of the unionism and the leadership of unionism going forward? Because if Edwin Poots were to, to take the leadership, um, you know, the, the Paisley period was dominated by simply uh, diminishing and demonising every other unionist uh, uh, so that they could be number one. It was a pure par trip, as, yeah. as it were, in terms of 
being number one. Um, but I don't remember that being to any great benefit of unionism overall. You know, as soon as they got to be number one, they did the deal with Sinn Féin to put themselves up alongside um, uh, Sinn Féin at the, at the top of the pile. And of course, the, the, the other problem you know, for Jeffrey Donaldson, should he win the leadership of the DUP, is how on earth do you manage a party that has this sulking entity sitting in the wings? Um, it simply doesn't augur well in terms of building a, a structure or a framework uh, or a party uh, to take unionism forward? No, it doesn't. And I suppose if Jeffrey Donaldson does manage to become the leader, then he would look back at Arlene Foster's time in the role uh, and reflect on the fact that ultimately she didn't manage to see off that um, Paisley out wing because it re-emerged. And, you know, maybe that would then shape the way that he decides to deal with it because if the idea is just to be unifying and um, just to keep it in the background, uh, then however many years down the line, it's going to come back and, and, and bite him and, and he will be the, the leader being deposed. But you're right. I mean, it, it was with the, the kind of Paisleyite element that always was a sort of aggression towards fellow unionists that you saw. It was also a sort of ambivalence uh, towards the rest of the United Kingdom, the Brits and all of this kind of thing uh, in, in Paisley apparently telling Martin McGuinness that uh, they didn't need English people to rule them, all this, all this kind yeah. of um, bitterness and, and almost exceptionalism, um, Ulster nationalism, if, if you like. So if that's to make a comeback, um, then it really will be to the detriment of, uh, of unionism. Yeah, listen, I, I think the, the biggest problem, of course, is who, who do you vote for? You know, there, there's no, you was, the DUP wasn't. Well, unless, you're, uh, unless you're part of this tiny electoral college, David. <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking forward to the assembly elections next year. Oh, yes. yes, uh, you yes know, I mean, I think, I think we, let's look forward uh, rather than just on the, on the immediate. If people weren't happy, say, with Poots, a natural place for unionism should be the Ulster Unionist Party. But I just don't get a sense anybody is, is, is particularly going there and and you know on the on the put side well why have half you know if, if you're going to uh, go for a party that actually stands by principle would you not go for the tuv because at least you actually have a leader there who is and i don't think anybody would ever say jim allister was not a principled politician you know he might not be a populist politician he might not say the right things to broaden that vote substantially but you know where you stand with with Jim Allister there's a real problem for unionism just in terms of where does your vote go uh, if you're a reasonably moderate the old live and let live sort of unionist just sort of wants to get on with life not be bothered much by politics uh, not be bothered much by government uh, but just simply to, to move on with family and, and whatever your, your particular interests are. Tough to see a, a, a political party that would basically be fighting your corner on that. It's become really difficult. And I suppose even Jim Allister's fiercest critics would acknowledge that he, he is 
basically the only kind of effective opposition within the Northern Ireland Assembly. And partly that gives him almost a almost a slightly easier role because he's able to function as, as that opposition without any real challenge. And also he doesn't have any aspirations to um to become part of the power sharing executive. So he doesn't have these trade-offs of principle that other no. unionists uh, get into. The Ulster Unionists did for a time try to fulfill that opposition role, but the cozied up to the SDLP at just the wrong time because the SDLP was beginning to push that nationalist line very strenuously after after the Brexit referendum. The Ulster Unionists, since they, they moved back from, from that uh, kind of oppositional role that they experimented with, have been lacking focus. And, you know, if, if you're looking at them, I suppose you're just kind of looking at who your local candidate is and deciding whether you can live with them because there's no overarching message there at all. And now we're waiting to see what becomes of the DUP and whether they will have a, mm. a message, whether they will have uh, a pitch to the voters. So it, it yes, it's absolutely a, a tremendously difficult kind of political landscape to navigate if you're just a unionist who wants to see things stabilized and 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 going for, and and things to to go forward in a you know relatively constructive way but with the union kept safe and, and sound it, it's very tricky and perhaps even more annoying is that all this uh kerfuffle over the DUP leadership and the the not inconsiderable amount of column inches and broadcast hours that are being spent uh, deliberating over practically nothing that we're hearing from the two candidates because they're not allowed to talk to anyone. We have at the same time nationalism in a pretty poor state. I mean, Sinn Féin have, uh, you know, there's an ex-councillor up on a murder charge in Dublin. I think he was previously charged with waterboarding somebody in his garage and threatening them with the IRA. Uh, And then, of course, we have Derry, Sinn Féin in, in complete meltdown this morning that Martin Anderson and Caramullen have now announced that they won't be standing at the next election as candidates. Uh, I would have thought Sinn Féin would have wanted to replace them sooner, not only to provide uh, alternative leadership focus, but also, of course, to keep the funding uh, rolling into a new structure in the city uh, through the the salaries of, of the MLAs and their attendant office staff. I can't imagine that the shenanigans that social media seems to be all over, but our mainstream media seem to have not much mentioned yet. I can't believe that it's only in the in Derry that that's happening, particularly when we've had other resignations during the uh, pandemic of money suddenly resting in people's accounts and all the rest. So, um, uh, you know, there must be some serious worries about the way that Sinn Féin is managed in particularly in Northern Ireland but maybe it's just as bad in the south. Yeah well we're, we're sort of moving from a controlling party with that's having an opaque uh, leadership contest to a party whose dealings are completely murky and uh, unaccountable. Mm. It, it's unthinkable that this is um, an issue that's restricted just the dairy. It's also um, you know something that while the, the issues that are coming to the fore are to do with governance, I think was the word that was used, 
um, in the, which is suitably vague. Um, it also has to do with uh, Sinn Féin's declining vote in, in Northern Ireland in, yeah. in the electoral contest. Um, so they're looking to um, you know, create a machine that, 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 that just doesn't have the kind of um, issues with image that the, the current party does. So I, I mean meanwhile elsewhere the the you know the, the idea of demographics or or suddenly the you know the, the border poll idea that seems to be shrinking as poll after poll. I'm a bit fatigued by polls at the moment because it, it particularly newspapers I think are using polling as cheap headlines and lazy copy. You know you can you can fill half a paper with a with a a poll of a few thousand people that cost you considerably less than a journalist would cost. Um, so, you know, and I think it's a way of trying to say we're relevant still when most of our newspapers are in steady decline because they're not paying for the sort of journalism that you actually pick up a newspaper for. Um, there's one or two exceptions, but, but I think that's fairly fair. Well, partly that's just because the money simply doesn't exist to um, go to, to do that investigative report, reporting, with a few exceptions. One of which would be the BBC, which went for the yeah. um the, the kind of uh, cheap polling idea the other day, and I think actually that exemplified the issue that you have with these polls because after using Ipsos Mori and other uh, companies like that for as many years as I can remember, uh, the BBC went for lucid talk and it does seem to me that the BBC, the Sunday Times, others, the Belfast Telegraph the whole way through prefer to commission polls from companies that will produce a very eye-catching result, uh, result because that makes for compelling copy but it doesn't necessarily give us a great insight into either facts or the issues behind those questions um, or indeed I mean what we're talking about Sinn Féin and its inner workings, there's a huge job of investigative journalism to go on if anybody would accept it there. It's easier and it, you can string it out more if you just, uh, if you provide one of these polls and then you can bounce discussion programs off them and you can bring on, you know, these Ireland's future groups and everything else. And it's just a, a circular self-sustaining yeah. industry really. I think I think the I think the newsletter has shown particularly in in the past year that good journalism is read. Some good journalists who produce good copy and on on proper stories, you will get attention. You will pick up subscriptions, if not the daily newspaper. And I think the the paid newspaper might not be you know the the sort of printed newspaper might not be the the best indication these days of whether or not a, a, a paper is healthy. I think you have to look now at subscriptions and the, the biggest challenge is that you know, opinion polls are almost, they're there to gauge opinion, but they're not much good at actually contributing to the greater knowledge as it were, or to the facts or to the, to the context of, of discussion. They're not a contribution to dialogue. All you get is then people throwing polls at each other rather than actually discussing serious facts. I thought the, the, the one point uh, that cropped out of the, uh, the, the poll in, the, in, I think it was the Irish Independent, where you know, it's all right talking about United Ireland, but then ask about paying for it and nobody will 
you know, all of a sudden that's not so attractive. And, and those are real issues. Those aren't just the, the steady stuff. And you, you only have to look at Germany, mighty Germany, that after how many decades now is it since German reunification? And there, there is still a solidarity tax being paid on, on unifi for unification, still, after all these years. It started at seven and a half. I don't think it's quite seven and a half percent now, but uh, it, it's, it's certainly uh, still in existence. And it struck me last week where, when Nicholas Sturgeon was talking about the, the protocol being a template for a future uh, Scotland in its trade with the rest of the UK. Uh, she's deluded. I mean, the protocol isn't a template for anything. I mean, it's not even her choice as to how she sets trade with England. It's not a Scottish decision anymore if she joins the EU. It's the EU's decision on how she goes forward. Articles in the Scottish press talking about the border, but not looking at the Northern Ireland Protocol and the actual relationships that exist now how that actually has impacted on the Republic of Ireland, how the protocol is working in Northern Ireland. People are looking in such their small little geographical on their doorstep stuff. They're not really looking at examples and what can we learn from anywhere else about how this might work. And you'd think that when she invoked the Northern Ireland protocol as an example for Scotland to follow, that then that would have um, prompted uh, a certain amount of analysis uh, of that Firstly, how it's working, because it's not working well. It's a template that um, you wouldn't wish on any other uh, region, but also the fact that it's just comparing apples and pears because she wants Scotland to uh, become independent and uh, become a full part of the European Union. And the entire purpose of the, the protocol uh, was to keep Northern Ireland politically within the United Kingdom while it was going to take single market rules from from brussels so on goods on, on goods, on goods yeah. well on, on goods indeed and stay officially within the united kingdom customs union so you know is that what she's proposing that um scotland is going but to stay even if, even if she thought that would be a good idea it's not in her gift anyway but even if it was within her, her gift it wouldn't be a good idea or a particularly tempting uh, prospect for voters in scotland i suspect no, but she wasn't challenged on it. There's reluctance. If I don't know what the reluctance is to draw attention to things that don't work, but there seems to be a great reluctance about pointing to the issues whenever whenever a politician says this will work. No, it doesn't. You know why can't we just say no? It doesn't. Why 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 are journalists so preoccupied with simply reporting what's said rather than actually questioning what's being said? And I think. You know, Sturgeon has come out of the pandemic well because, quite simply, her press conferences, no one asks any questions. I think Robin Swan has come out of COVID uh, reputation enhanced, but nobody's ever asked questions of the health department or, you know, when they have asked questions, they've been cut down as being COVID deniers or, or you know, people who we shouldn't be listened to. Yeah, well, that's certainly what's happened with COVID because it became a kind of a, an ideology that um, you couldn't possibly question or deny. And I know that that happens with, with other issues and Nicola Sturgeon's um, 
performances on, on, on those press conferences were one thing, but then uh, the BBC were inviting SNP commentators onto the programmes to critique their own leaders' performance. So, you know, how does that hold anybody to account? It's, and, and that as well was in the lead up to, um, to this electoral contest. And even with all those advantages, it's, uh, it's looking like the SNP's performance is going to be underwhelming. Remarkable. Your, your view of your political party seems more and more divorced from actually looking at any policies or even considering whether there's been actual any delivery by the parties of, well, non-existent manifestos to a large part. Well, the view that I always took, and I always like to, to bring things back to a kind of football analogy, the view that I always took was that um, your political party wasn't like your football team because you don't change your football team, but you should certainly change your political party if you find that they don't uh, adhere to the kind of principles that you want to espouse. But I, I'm, I'm not sure that that is the way that most people look at it. It becomes a kind of a, a tribal thing. And we see that with all the abuse that's floating around social media, Tory this and Tory that, or you know, or, or whatever. That's just the most uh, kind of vicious examples that you see. But, well, yeah, um, they've also said that you don't, you don't put, sorry. You don't, you, you don't you get the sense that, sorry, David. I was just going to add, it, it's also said that you don't vote for the party you like, you, you vote against the party that you don't like. Um, well, so that's certainly the case <laughs> in Northern Ireland, isn't it? <laughs> And we've covered that already. Just we've covered that already. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a good. I think it's a good spot to to stop and maybe catch up after this election. See if there's anything much has changed. Uh, uh, if the DUP looks as if it's going to head in a different direction or not, uh, or or just muddle along and hope for the best. Of course, we'll have uh, the results of the massive number of elections in and across uh, GB uh, to to chat about because I think there's a there's a chat to be had about the direction of politics in the in the UK overall, the Labour Party that seems lost, the, the, the Teflon Prime Minister that seems to just bounce along happily and, and uh, you almost can't dislike the guy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think we've got a lot to talk about next time. I look forward to sorting it all out. <laughs> Cheers, Owen.